0: BDNG Podcast. My name is Tina McKenzie and I am the Education Development Lead for the BDNG. I hope you enjoy listening to the BDNG Podcast and find them beneficial to your practice. These podcasts are sponsored by Amarill. Amarill has no influence over the content of these podcasts. Happy listening. Hello and welcome back to the BDNG Podcast. My name is Ashton Cleary and I'm one of the Clinical Nurse Specialists in Dermatology. And alongside me is my lovely co-host Emmanuel
1: Tony. Hello and I'm an ACP in Dermatology as well.
0: And with us today we have consultant dermatologist Kaveh Sham and we are going to be speaking about hydrodinitis superitiva. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much.
0: So first of all for those who don't know you do you want to give us a little bit of overview of who you are and where you are?
2: Of course. Uh, I'm an associate clinical professor and honorary consultant dermatologist based in Leeds and I'm uh, also the co-lead of our HS psoriasis and biologic services and alongside my NHS work I also do some academic uh, work where we are trying to understand better how uh, leukocytes white cells drive disease.
0: Fantastic it sounds like you're a very busy man. Um, so first of all for those listening so this is for dermatology nurses at um, at the BDNG, what is hydrogenitis Superitiva?
2: So hydrogenitis superativa or HS is a very common condition, very debilitating uh, skin condition associated with postural formation in the skin, leading to tissue destruction, sinus formation, abscesses, fistulation. It is more common in skin folds, though it can affect uh, many and diverse uh, skin skin sites, and can lead to very disfiguring disease adhesions, and uh, in its more extreme forms, uh, collections uh, within body cavities and restricted movement. And I think over the past uh, years, it has become apparent that it is likely more common than was initially imagined. And certainly when we set up the HS clinic in Leeds, we find that the the capacity that the clinic needs in order to run is frankly not far behind what is needed for eczema and psoriasis. So it is one of the big inflammatory uh, skin disorders uh, of our times, I think. And if
1: I can ask you a question just about the pathogenesis of uh, HS, uh, do you mind just talking us through it, please, and giving us a bit of an understanding?
2: Of course. And and in many ways, we have just started scratching the surface of what's happening uh, in, in terms of hydradenitis. Uh, so as with many things, skin, we need the... Uh, correct environmental and genetic setup. Uh, we, we don't fully understand these, but there are certain genes and, and certain traits that make you more likely to, to develop HS. Much of the abnormality appears to start off around the hair follicle unit and obstruction of, uh, of Exits from the skin, so say sebaceous uh, glands, for instance, can lead to the accumulation of of bacteria leading to a a pustule or or a micro abscess. Now, uh, so far this can happen in in those without HS and and the body is very good at shutting off um, inflammation. So we have many mechanisms that limit inflammation and close it down once, once the job is done. But for reasons we're, we're just starting to understand, in NHS, this just goes on and on. So we get activation, for instance, of dendritic cells, and these in turn uh, lead to the, the, the expansion of a population of Th17 cells. These produce IL-17, and the IL-17 causes more tissue damage. Also, the dendritic cells lead to the development of uh, further Th- Th1 cells, and, and these produce TNF interferon. And, and uh, the TNF in particular can synergize with IL-17 in, in worsening an already bad situation. Once this has happened, uh, we also get recruitment of a second, th- third, and fourth tier of inflammatory cells. And this includes neutrophils. And, and neutrophils are very uh, very capable of, of causing tissue destruction. And they can do this in many different ways. They can, uh, for instance, release enzymes uh, that, that lead to tunneling through the skin. And we start seeing these fistulas and tracts that we associate with HS. They can also undergo this process called uh, netosis. Uh, so this is the release of uh, molecules that look almost like nets, and, and they're usually there to capture bacteria, but in HS they lead to worsening inflammation. So worsening inflammation, even more Th17, Th1 cells, and on and on we go. Ab sorry, thank you very much for that. So with regards to treatment options,
1: because you mentioned quite a few uh, interleukins and inflammatory pathways, then what are kind of some of the treatments options we have, and are there different kind of almost strengths of treatments out there?
2: So, so that's an area that has really developed uh, quite uh, quite rapidly over the past three to four years. So, there is uh, to start off with. Good evidence for the use of rifampicin and clendamycin so 300 milligrams of each twice daily for three months and about two-thirds of patients do respond to this this regime we also have um, uh, for instance retinoids I, I, I mentioned that you can get blockade of, of, of ducts and the, and the follicular unit and, and acetretin isotretinoin can work in certain scenarios But given the excess inflammation, uh, we uh, often need to try our hand at various immunosuppressive treatments. So these can be uh, conventional immunosuppressants, similar to what we would use in eczema and and psoriasis. But excitingly also, more uh, recent developments allow us to target cytokines more selectively. So first among the biologics was uh, adalimumab, an anti-TNF, part of our TH1 responses. Uh, and there are trials ongoing at the moment looking at IL seventeen blockade. Um, so, there the, the was recent um, a recent presentation at the EADV showing, uh, for instance, that secukinumab at a two weekly uh, dosing regime, as opposed to the four weekly for psoriasis, uh, was superior to um, to placebo. And a dual IL seventeen A and F inhibitor bimekizumab is also undergoing uh, a phase uh, three program at the moment.
1: And in terms of treatments, I mean, you know, with psoriasis, it's kind of like a stepped up approach. Is there something
2: similar for HS and what will push you down a certain treatment option over the others? Um, so so to a degree there is. Uh, much like psoriasis and eczema, um, presentation to us is often delayed. Um, and 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 that is a big challenge. And and. There is a large. No, there are large numbers of patients out there still that that are not benefiting from recent developments. In terms of a stepwise approach, I think uh, antibiotics. Uh, you know, your cyclin, so ciprofloxacin, doxycycline are fair first choices for mild disease. We then often move on to rifampicin and, and clindamycin. And what kind of steps we then take depends on the clinical appearance. Is it very inflammatory? Is it fistulating? Etc. So if, if there is very deep-seated infective component to it, patients often benefit from uh, sometimes from intravenous antibiotics even. Some centers use artapenem. We have had good experiences with intravenous tazacin in, in Leeds, for instance, for deep-seated infections and multiple um, sinus tracts. Um, and uh, biologics, of course, also come into play. Uh, The the licensed one at the moment is Adalimumab, and for those with five inflammatory nodules or more, which in my experience tends to be most individuals, would be eligible uh, for a biologic. The treatment response can be a bit variable. Some patients have an excellent response, some less so. If adalimab is not adequate, often our to-go-to is adding on doxycycline, for instance. Uh, But after that, it gets difficult at the moment. Treatment options are limited. Sometimes we can try, for instance, colchicine, dapsone. But it is exciting that a second tier of of biologics might become available.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And we have GP practice nurses also who will be listening to this. So what stage would you recommend That they should be referring their patients into secondary care Um, and and second to that you know what should they be trying first of all in primary care before they they reach us?
2: So um, we're very sympathetic to our our, uh, community colleagues because the options really are quite limited even relatively straightforward steps like doxycycline and limacycline need to be used at unlicensed doses so typically say uh, doxycycline 100 milligrams twice daily uh, would be my recommendation as a good starting point. But many GP practices wouldn't be comfortable with that. But that would be a fair starting point. My preference would be that our patients are seen earlier on. And even if we don't keep them forever, we can map out the treatment landscape going forward and and share with them the exciting developments in in the field um, so that they know that there is help out there should they need it. And I think that is quite important because it is a very lonely Disease. Even those with a, with a very strong family history typically don't know of their mother and sister having it because patients don't tend to like to talk about this until they have their diagnosis. Uh, so, so always helpful as an aside to take the family history twice, once at diagnosis and once again, once they have had the diagnosis because it often differs. And yeah, referring them in low threshold for referring patients in, uh, even if it is just for a, a quick catch up, they might not need us long term. But we can we can agree a plan in the in the in the short, medium, and long term with them.
1: And we've ta- we've talked quite a bit there about kind of the the medical management of these patients. Do you have much uh, experience, or do you work closely with the plastic surgeons or perhaps a surgical team where you work? And how often are you referring patients over to them?
2: Um, absolutely, and that that's. Uh, part and parcel of what we do and one of the major reasons why the the hs services were set up Uh, so as as i mentioned patients unfortunately come to us quite late Uh, so so the problem with fistulas and sinus tracts are that once they have formed they epithelialize they don't tend to go away spontaneously we also get biofilm formation, which protects certain bacterial species. And um, interestingly, also the type of bacteria you get changed. So we go from, you know, your aerobic species, which would have been responsive to, say, you know, penicillins, uh, to more of anaerobic uh, flora. Once all of this has happened and you start seeing scars and fistulas and sinus tracts and recurrently filling abscesses, it is difficult to manage this solely medically so we optimize the medical side, we treat any active infection, we try to limit inflammation, and we try to reduce further damage. But this is where we link in with surgeons, and we have two general surgeons in our, uh, within our department with an active interest in H.S., and we often refer patients to them. In terms of proportion, I would say it probably is about one in five or so that get a surgical review, and the response can be really quite transformative. Um, You can have patients who can't lift their arms, for instance, because of adhesions, and and being able to move their arms and brush their hair again is is to them sometimes a a bigger deal than, than not having ongoing disease some patients are not suitable for surgery but knowing that the option is out there should they need it again is quite quite helpful in in the holistic management of of the patient so yes absolutely something we're doing and something which we are keen to develop even further
0: and you you alluded there to the kind of psychosocial impact on these patients what is your um you know experience with this and how can we help our patients in this respect
2: um it's it's a Big deal. I, I think HS affects patients at, uh, well, no disease affects patients at a good time, but this is particularly bad. It's usually during patients' formative years, when they're 16, 17, 18, when their mind should be on things other than, than, than their health. It's also, as I mentioned, a very lonely place to be. It's not something that is easy to talk about. And, and much as eczema and psoriasis is also stigmatizing, at least there is a societal awareness of them, HS much less so. It seems to have a mind of its own um, because it, it, seem, it often relentlessly progresses until they see us, and that often is a function of there being few therapeutic options in, in primary care. And we see time and time again... Patients' lives taking a very uh, dark turn. People not being able to go to school. People not being able to work. Uh, Relationship breakdown. Putting off starting a family just because of HS often affecting genital skin and and uh, cosmetically sensitive areas, painful areas. And and we know from our personal experience, but also from studies conducted in the Netherlands and Denmark that productivity work-wise does go down so uh, patients tend to even when they make it to work be less productive at at work and it's, it's hardly surprising when we see the the pain some of our our patients are are in what we can do to help i think greater awareness is is one and and that goes for both um, patients so that they can seek help and also for primary care colleagues to refer them in early my personal perspective is that i'd rather see them um, I, I much rather have a referral than not. So, so nobody will get upset if, if they see a referral from the community about HS. And then treating early. There is a tendency, I think, sometimes in, in all specialties to sort of flog dead horses. Like things don't work, but you just keep at it, you keep at it, you keep at it. And, and before you know it, years have passed uh, the damage in terms of life prospects has happened already to the patient. Mm-hmm. And and we have physical destruction of, of tissue. Uh, and I would like to see that not happen. Of
0: course. And, and to add to that as well, um, you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but what sort of lifestyle modifications could they be doing alongside this?
2: There, there are a few things that can be done. There is a a link between, for instance, obesity and HS, and uh, at the last AAD, there was an interesting study that tried to work out whether the obesity causes the HS, or HS leads to the obesity because of uh, movement restriction. Actually, it, it appears to be that it is obesity driving the HS, so there is an argument for weight loss. It needs to be handled sensitively. Patients have often not been heard for 10 years. Uh, they already feel very self-conscious and leading with, you have this because of your obesity and because you smoke, in my view, isn't the way to do it. So I tend to wait until you have a bit of built a bit of a relationship with, with the patient before we go down that route. Because the reality is, it is difficult at the best of time And how could you go for a jog or a run if you have HS affecting the groin, the armpits? It's it's painful to to sit, let alone run. Uh, So a bit of sympathy goes a long way, I think. Uh, But yeah, smoking cessation reduces inflammation in general. Uh, Weight loss is likely to help. Um, But also, it's important to be honest and candid about the likely benefit. Will somebody go from... HS to no HS because they stop smoking, of course they won't. And similarly, with the weight loss, we see plenty of patients who are, if anything, underweight, and and they still have HS. So a degree of realism about what what that is likely to achieve. But I tend to focus more on the overall benefits when it comes to, um, to weight loss. So yes, once we have the HS under control, you would want to become more active and do all these things that... You're mentioned that you want to do and weight loss is part of that as well so it's not just about the hs
0: you mentioned earlier about the future treatment options with secukinumab. do you know of any any other treatments in trials at the moment that
2: yes yeah, so, so two in particular uh, come to mind i find them uh, quite exciting because that's my uh, line of uh, research is about uh, leukocyte movement within tissue and and targeting how uh, inflammatory cells aggregate into certain areas it has been difficult to target therapeutically, but there are two strands that show promise. Um, so one is a blocker of a complement called C5A. So C5A very potently attract neutrophils to sites of inflammation. And, and we have mentioned how neutrophils can cause tissue destruction and, and help cause these fistulas and tracts and sinuses to form. And the, the phase three, two program for that drug showed promise, especially in Hurley three hydranitis. Uh, so that's entering a phase three program. The other leukocyte neutrophil chemoattractant is uh, a leukotriene, so LTB4. So leukotrienes have been targeted in asthma for some time. So in principle, there is experience with it. Uh, And LTB4 is highly expressed in hydronitis superativa. And that too is undergoing clinical trials. So the future looks quite bright. And I think one of the things we as... um, clinicians uh, as doctors nurses healthcare workers can do is to share knowledge of what is coming in the future i think it is so valuable to patients to know that are trials ongoing even if they're not in the trial themselves because it makes them feel heard and listened to and they know there is a plan b c and d likely in the future should it be needed
1: Fantastic, thank you so much. Now, if we could just move on now to your key points, so this is for dermatology nurses listening to this, what would you like them to take home from this conversation?
2: So that uh, hydrogenitis superativa is likely to be much more common than we think and that the impact on patients' lives can be uh, profound. Uh, we need to see the patients in the, in the wider societal context HS affects patients at a particularly difficult time. You know when people should be teenagers, when they should be young adults, and develop a career and relationships. A sympathetic approach, I think, is is best. A multidisciplinary approach to lifestyle modification. We have an HS nurse, for instance, and 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 that will be really helpful in in. In, in helping patients improve their, their lifestyle, but also the, the other take home message that the future appears quite bright for our patients. Uh, many trials on the verge of being launched and and quite an exciting pipeline of drugs in, in development. So there is reason to be optimistic and, and sharing that optimism with uh, patients.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for ending on such a positive note. As you said yourself, exciting times um, coming. So thank you for your time. And um, we will hopefully see you again soon.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode for further information on the BDNG visit our website bdng.org.uk and watch out for the next BDNG podcast which is coming soon